Welcome to the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. We talk to attorneys about their lives and careers. I'm Lewis Goodman. I'm a lawyer. And today I'm talking with attorney, author, and professor Kenneth Ford McCallion. Professor McCallion tried federal cases as an assistant United States attorney and prosecuted organized crime for the New York State Attorney General's Office before turning to civil litigation. He's written a book called Saving the World One Case at a Time about his work with some of the most important and high-profile criminal and civil litigations in modern times. Kenneth McCallion, welcome to Love Thy Lawyer. Well, thank you very much, Lewis, for inviting me. Appreciate you being here. Where are you talking to us from right now? Where are you located? Well, actually, I'm on a sailboat right now in Stonington Harbor, Stonington, Connecticut, and uh, it's kind of my floating office. Uh, How's the wind been? I was picking up today, 16, 20 knots, and the sailing's been very good. What sort of practice or work are you doing these days? Well, a lot of our work really has been in the civil rights and human rights area over the last few years. So we're also doing environmental law, employment discrimination cases, but a lot of our major cases really have dealt with, really dealt with international human rights violations, particularly against Germany on behalf of two tribes in Namibia. It's really not taught in, in, in most U.S. educational systems, but it was the first genocide of the 20th century actually before the Armenian Genocide and, of course, long before the, the Holocaust. About 80% of these tribes were, were really wiped out. So we're seeking reparations and an apology from, from Germany, and it's been a long, long haul. How long have you been practicing law? Well, I've, I had my 50th anniversary of my law school graduating class of 1972 at Fordham Law School, and I've been practicing since graduating law school. Where are you from originally? I was born in the Bronx, New York, and grew up primarily and went to high school in Pelham, New York, which is a small community in Westchester County, nestled between Mount Vernon and New Rochelle. And it was a very nice, kind of a small town feel, although it was very close to New York City. So where'd you go to high school, at Pelham? Pelham High School. I did pretty well academically and also uh, did well at track. Attracted the attention of the uh, Yale coach who happened to be the Olympic coach at the time. And I think that may have helped me get a scholarship up at, up at Yale. What was your experience at Yale like? How, how was that going to school there? It was pretty exciting back then. Back in 72, most of the students had come from private schools. I was one of the public school kids, but I did pretty well. And my roommate across the were some prep school kids. One of them was George W. Bush. And I, I also got to know his father, George Bush Sr., who was president before him. In fact, my first recommendation for a government job was from the elder George Bush. When you graduated from Yale... You ultimately went to law school. Did you go directly to law school or did you take some time off? 
No, I did not. I was a community community organizer. Nobody knew quite what a community organizer did till maybe Barack Obama had to do some explaining. He was he did it in Chicago. I was out on the West Coast and I worked. I had the opportunity to work with the farm workers union, Cesar Chavez, and others. When did you first start thinking? I want to be a lawyer. I want to go to law school. That's where I want my career and my life to go. Well, pretty early on, it was really a family trade. My father was a a trial lawyer and at the dinner table and after dinner, he'd recount, you know, some of, some of the cases he was involved in. He'd give us fact patterns and get our comments. So I take it when you announced that you were going to law school, that your family was pretty supportive, especially your dad. Definitely, definitely. Do you think that having taken that year off and doing some community organizing focused you for going to law school? It certainly strengthened my belief and commitment that the importance of union organizing, community organizing, really for the disenfranchised was an important part of, you know, my family's ethos growing up. It was a strong union family. And also, both of my parents were quite active, really, in civil rights issues and, to some extent, the anti-war issues in the 1960s. I really wanted to go to law school because um, I could see the critical role that the justice system and lawyers played, really, in the important movements, civil rights, unionization issues that was important to me and other family members. That was your first real job as an attorney at the United States Attorney's Office? Yes. Well, when I was in law school, I was actually interned with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and got to work on some cases and involved in arguments, watching arguments. For example, the Pentagon Papers was very active then in the early 70s. After graduating law school, I was invited by the special prosecutor for nursing homes, Joe Hines of New York State, to work for him for a while, which I did. There's a chapter in my book on that, but I still really didn't have any major trial practice. There was plea negotiations and discovery and motions and hearings, but still no trials. And my real desire was to be a trial lawyer. So I got a call from the Brooklyn Strike Force of the Justice Department, a small group of prosecutors under Tom Puccio in Brooklyn, kind of the Brooklyn equivalent of what Giuliani had going in the Southern District at the time. And that group of 12 or 13 lawyers um, was a wonderful experience for me. They're all the lawyers were more experienced than me when it came to trial practice. So really under their tutelage and then trying cases by myself and investigations, I was really able, I I think after a few dozen trials to develop into a fairly skilled trial lawyer. And some of the cases we had are are legend. The movie Goodfellas, as you might know, is based on the Lufthansa heist case that the Brooklyn Strike Force had the Abscam cases, uh, political corruption cases, and, and others came out of the Brooklyn Strike Force, so it was really quite exciting. After you worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you went to the New York State Attorney General's Office. What prompted that move? Well, the the Attorney General, Bob Abrams, and his chief assistants, uh, I worked on some joint investigations with them 
And basically, the Brooklyn strike force, maybe we kind of worked ourselves out of a job. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn and elsewhere were somewhat jealous of us. So the strike forces were being phased out and integrated into the U.S. Attorney's offices. So a number of us looked around, you know, for other other positions. And I was given both an executive position in the state attorney general's office, as well as pretty much a free reign to investigate what we had really started in Brooklyn doing, which was racketeering and corruption in the utility industry, Long Island Lighting Company, in the construction of the Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant in eastern Long Island. You ultimately left government service and started a very successful civil practice. Can you tell us a little bit about the transition and what prompted that and how you went from the government work to the civil side? For some lawyers, it can be an abrupt change. For me, it was kind of a seamless transition because the first private firm I worked for actually became special counsel to Suffolk County, which took the lead on the investigation and prosecution of Lilco. So although I was in private practice, I was still representing a governmental entity, Suffolk County. And although it was a civil prosecution, it was a major civil RICO case. So I felt very comfortable as a former prosecutor working in that space. And, and then when that case was over, we got a call from Alaska where we had an affiliated firm up there. And they said, you know, the a ship called the Exxon Valdez just ran aground up here. Can you get up here to help us out on that case? And I was up there within 48 hours, and the Exxon Valdez was still spilling oil, still really no relief ships around it. I actually was able to leave New York, go up to Anchorage, get on a, a private plane to fly over the the wreck, and we took photos actually when the waters were still pretty calm there and the cleanup uh, unfortunately was only just starting the containment of the oil was only really just starting given the lack of proper preparation that spoke that case spoke for a good part of my next uh, five years or so as i shuttled back and forth between anchorage and new york trying to juggle cases back in new york well being part of the team that represented the native Alaskan corporations in the Exxon Valdez litigation. Were you satisfied with the ultimate settlement in that case? Well, it not really. We felt great. The jury verdict in the punitive damage case was $5 billion, which seemed like a pretty nice round number. Now, in the appellate process, we were not so successful. Every appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and ultimately to the Supreme Court Every step seemed to knock a billion or so off the amount. And personally, it was a very, very exciting time. I, I got to, you know, to participate in the trial teams, both at the state level and the federal level. And Alaska is a great place. I'm kind of an outdoorsman, love fishing, running, mountain climbing and biking. So it was, it was great for me. Although my, my family was thousands of miles away back in New York, they joined me for a while. But it was a long and difficult case and somewhat disappointing at the appellate level. The trial level, as I mentioned, was really exciting and very productive. 
I'd like to ask you about one of the cases that you talk about in your book, which was the the Cornell Bridge case. I think one of the things that really interested me about it is living here in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's been a great deal of discussion for years about putting in additional safety systems on the Golden Gate Bridge where, you know, obviously many, many people have jumped to their deaths as a result of a suicide. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that Cornell case because it brings up some of the issues that have been discussed here in the Bay Area. Absolutely. And in Cornell, we carefully followed the developments on the Golden Gate Bridge, which of course is America's really iconic, iconic bridge. And the gorge bridges over the gorges and rivers that bisect the Cornell campus are similar iconic bridges in the East. And Cornell got the unfortunate reputation of being a suicide you because over a period of decades, there was resistance to putting safety suicide-proof barriers on the bridge by really the architecture departments and others of Cornell, which felt that the aesthetics of the bridge should not be impaired by putting up larger, larger railings. Meanwhile, there was a spate of, of suicides. The ultimately, the, the turning point came when my client's uh, young man, a freshman named Ginsburg at, at Cornell was one of three students who jumped from the bridges in a relatively short period of time. This precipitated really an emergency measures by the city and Cornell really to block off the bridges, which really had been unprecedented with just for the time being. And then ultimately the spate of suicides was so shocking that there was ultimately an agreement entered into the safety railings, which we had been advocating all along would be installed on, on these Cornell bridges. And also sometimes called a McCallion netting. It's underneath some of the bridges, which, you know, changed the aesthetics somewhat, but it saved a number of lives. You would tend to think, well, if somebody wanted to commit suicide, they'll just try it again or they'll try a different way. And the study showed that the overwhelming majority of those who survived a first suicide attempt never tried it again and sought counseling and other, other alternatives. So the studies which we helped with and the legal cases we worked on with psychologists and in the, in the courts, I think, turned the corner and colleges, universities and towns are taking a much greater focus on safety measures for our iconic bridges, our iconic spaces. What do you really like about practicing law? I mean, you've been doing it for a long time. You've had a very varied career. You are someone who is bright and can do a number of different things, but you've stayed with the practice of law. I'm wondering why that is. A law license is, is certainly a tool. It's a trade, but it also gives a lawyer a great deal of, of flexibility. And unlike other professions, if I was a dentist, for example, and worked on the kind of projects I've worked on and the kind of causes people would say, well, you know, why is a dentist, you know, working in the environmental area and public corruption, et cetera? But if you're a lawyer, we are really considered to have such a broad range or spectrum of skills and interests that we can segue and reinvent ourselves in the litigation and other, other areas. If a young person were 
coming out of college, would you recommend the law as a profession? Oh, yes. And I, I do it on a regular basis. And if they're interested in pursuing a career in law, I, I like to help give them a boost, some guidance into it. And some of them have done well in law school or are out practicing law. What sort of advice would you give a young attorney just starting out in his or her career? Look at your interests. If you want to be a trial lawyer like I, I wanted to be, being either prosecutor or a legal defender or working in a personal injury firm, a plaintiff's firm, is really the only way to really get a lot of court experience, trial experience, and investigative experience. What do you think is the best advice that you ever received? Well, really from, I'd say, both my father and really my legal mentor. Both of them really were fearless trial lawyers, but they told me, you know, really follow your instincts, do what you want to do, what you like to do, and the rest will follow. Follow your bliss, follow your instincts, follow your conscience. And if, in fact, the law is not just a way to make a living, it's a, it's a honorable profession where we all try and leave the world a little, a little better place than, than we found it, then us as lawyers are doing our job and we've upheld the highest, really the highest aspects of and traditions of the profession. Do you think the legal system is fair? Largely not. Contingent fee cases have leveled the playing field somewhat in this country. To a large extent, the federal courts have, I hate to say this, become really a dispute resolution venue for large corporations to settle their differences between themselves. A lot of the judicial system is, I think the resources are taken up in inter-corporate disputes with regard to plaintiffs, particularly in employment discrimination cases, civil rights cases, there are significant barriers now to the successful prosecution of those cases. And I see more and more lawyers kind of giving up because it's hard to make a living in civil rights cases against the government, against police officers when there's qualified immunity and so forth is almost a 90% or 100% bar against, against recovery. Congress has a lot to do really in in helping level that playing field again so that plaintiffs, the little guy, the ordinary American, the small business have a, have a fair shake in the justice system and that the scales of justice are more even. You're speaking to me right now from your sailboat. What other sort of recreational pursuits do you enjoy when you're not practicing law? Well, I've run 25 New York marathons, a number of tri uh, triathlons. I t tend to have a lot of extra energy, which I need to burn off through sports. I'm on my uh, racing bike for miles every day. I uh, play tennis every day and enjoy the sailing, which is a great, great sport. And of course, I have an avocation of writing books. I seem to be a compulsive writer and have, have actually turned out more books than my uh, my publisher has been able to catch up with. How do you define success? Well, I, I think success doesn't come from external trappings, it, but it really comes from a person's core. Let's say you came into some real money, three or four billion dollars, 
What, if anything, would you do differently in your life? Well, really, really nothing, because I'm doing exactly what I like to do. But with that kind of, of money, you know, we're always shorthanded when it comes to experts like to get paid. I, I don't like volunteer lawyers. Uh, some lawyers offer their services for nothing, but unless they're independently wealthy, I'm a firm believer that a lawyers, law students should be paid for their services. So we have difficulty doing that sometimes. So with those kinds of, of resources, we wouldn't have to worry about litigation financing. We wouldn't have to worry about paying the bills and the salaries. And uh, I think that we'd be able to take on a wider array, uh, array of cases and hopefully leave a legacy for a future generation of lawyers. Let's say you had 60 seconds on the Super Bowl. What message would you like to put out to the nation in that ad? Sure. I would say that, you know, you've seen wildfires, you've seen temperatures above 100 degrees, which you've never seen before. You've seen air, water, your lakes drying up. Super Bowls are important, but the survival of our environment, of our, of our very being is critical for our children and our children's children. Wake up, let's all take action and do our part. If somebody listening to this podcast wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Well, they could go to uh, the law firm's website, www.mccallionlaw.com. Or if you would type in my name, Mc Kenneth McCallion, or the book, Saving the World One Case at a Time, and I respond to all the inquiries to, to my law firm's website. And we'll get those links in the show notes. Thank you. Ken, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? Well, I, I think we touched on an awful lot from the environmental cases, the human rights, to the bridges at Cornell, which are very close to my heart. Ken, I'd, I'd like to put in one final plug here for your book. It's called Saving the World One Case at a Time by Kenneth Ford McCallion. And it's really an interesting read. You have had an almost Zelig-like seat at modern American legal history. You've outlined it in this book, and it's a very interesting read, so I would recommend it. Well, thanks so much, Lewis, for your vote of confidence, and uh, we'd like to get as many copies out there, and if, they can't, if people can't afford them, you know, I'd say go with a paperback. I like the hard copy myself. But one way or the other, if you contact us through the websites, we'll, we'll make sure that you can get it one way or the other. Kenneth McCallion, thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Lewis. I appreciate it. That's it for today's episode of Love Thy Lawyer. If you enjoyed listening, please share it with a friend and follow the podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, send me an email. Take a look at our website at lovethylawyer.com where you can find all of our episodes, transcripts, photographs, and information. Thanks to my guests and to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, Paul Roberts for social media, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. Okay, hold on a second. Let me just consult with my colleagues.